0: Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick.
1: The world is increasingly technological, so we had better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright police from pulling the wall on us. facing and taking on all the plates to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Sautilize and do their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt to so grab a shovel and dig
0: If you, like me, believe that a big part of the value of the internet was that it was an open, global, connected network, allowing anyone to connect with and potentially communicate with anyone else, the last few years may have been, well, I guess, perhaps somewhat frustrating. Uh, A few years back, people started seeing cracks in that idea of the global open internet, especially as certain more, I'll say, authoritarian countries like China, Iran, and even Russia started to wall off parts of the internet, uh, leading to the use of the term splinternet, which I think started to become popular a few years ago. But more recently, this idea of more geographically isolated internets uh, has been gaining some steam, and not just in authoritarian countries. For example... Here on TechTurt, we've discussed some of the risks of different policies uh, and regulations in different regions, including recent EU regulations that may lead the internet to fracture some more, uh, not to mention laws in lots of other countries from places like India and Australia and many other places as well, all of which I personally find Somewhat concerning. Uh, this has led some, including recently the Council on Foreign Relations, to declare the end of the global internet. And from what I can tell, even some of the bigger internet companies, mostly US based internet companies, who spent many years supporting and fighting for the idea of an open global internet. Um, it feels as if some of them have decided to throw in the towel and admit that they're moving to a world in which the internet is actually much more fractured. Uh, But the open global internet concept should be something worth fighting for. At least I believe that. And uh, last year, uh, Jason Pelemeyer and Chris Riley wrote a really interesting piece for Lawfare in defense of the global open internet, arguing that we shouldn't be so willing to accept this new state of the world Uh, There was also a TechDirt post about their Lawfare article. Uh, Jason is the executive director of the Global Network Initiative, and Chris is a global internet policy and technology scholar at the Annenberg Policy Center, and both are here today to talk about these questions. And since we're in a new year, we will also be looking at what 2023 Looks like for a global internet in theory, in, in from what we can tell. So I want to start, though, rather than looking forward at what is what may happen this year by looking a bit backwards, uh, in particular about the nature of internet governance and even the term internet governance. This is a term that I hear a lot, and my feeling is that many of the people who are not really, really deep in this world and spending lots of time talking about, thinking about, arguing about, going to conferences about, going to other events about internet governance, uh, people don't really understand what that means. And that includes, I would say, probably many of the people listening to this podcast. Uh, So I want to start by doing kind of a a history lesson 101 on on the history of internet governance. And for that, I'm going to throw it to Chris. So Chris, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks, Mike. Uh, Good to be here, good to chat with you and Jason about these um, timeless and timely (laughs) topics at the same time. Um, I I wrote an article about a decade ago riffing on the the well-known political theorist Robert Nozick called Anarchy, uh, State, or Utopia, Checks and Balances of Power and Internet Governance. That was in 2012. It was for a uh, special issue of IEEE magazine, Censorship and Control. To me, that's kind of like a midpoint in this conversation, because the actual origins of thinking about internet governance uh, probably are demarcated or approximately in 1996, when famed activist and Grateful Dead lyricist J.P. Barlow gave his speech the Declaration of the Independence of Cyberspace in Davos. Um, he, uh, at that time, uh, really highlighted the earliest stages of internet governance as a sort of government and regulatory-free zone, harkening back to the even earlier days where a very few people who you could count on your two hands were managing all of the operational and thereby all of the governance uh, architectures and structures of the internet. So we have this origin of the internet being run essentially by a, a, a social club, a, a literal boys <laughs> club of, of uh, Western men, um, moving forward into a more complex structure in the mid-90s where there were corporations and they were doing big and important and interesting things, and millions and millions and millions of users. And all of these actions started to come together. And in the sort of late 2000s and early 2010s, governments really started to take a look at this and say, what are, what are we doing here? Obviously, the history of government involvement in regulation and governance and, and limits and rules around the Internet is longer than that. Um, But I think it really started to come to a head at some point where when government started asking, hey, what are we doing here? Um, The questions around what internet governance means get a little bit more interesting. So to move sort of from the history to the definitional stage, I use the phrase internet governance to describe the sort of universe of levers of power and influence that shape the technologies and use of those technologies of the internet. So when I wrote my article, I framed four different buckets for that. There's the role of governments and laws and regulations and the influence that they have. There's the role of companies, both in the code and the products that they build to channel Larry Lessig's code is law, uh, books, and narrative. Um, there are individual users and their actions and the way that they can choose and employ and customize and vary technologies as they use them. And then there are overall market forces and ecosystems that are a little bit different from the behaviors of users, companies, and governments, and we're thinking about at the same time. So when I wrote that article a decade ago, it's because many years of so-called internet governance forums, or IGFs, that is, uh, for those who are not aware, an annual event put together under the United Nations as a, a, a forum to bring together people who care about the internet and about these levers of power that shape it to talk about the issues that we're collectively facing and to try to make some progress, at least normatively, on coming up with answers to those problems. So about a decade ago, we started really thinking, we, I meaning the broader conversation on internet governance, started really getting caught in, do we want more government or less government on the internet? And that is, um, while a question that can be studied, obviously a very narrow lens onto this complex landscape of internet governance. And I think it's been in some ways polluting the conversations around internet governance since then. And I don't, I'm not a, i am um, not the type of person who says that, you know, the, there's no role for government here, that all regulations or interference are bad. I think there's a very important role for government in many parts of the space, but it has to be understood against that complex backdrop. And as Mike set up, I think we're sort of, entering a similar time here, where a lot of the problems that are seen in the internet that we have today, the, the first and quickest answer to them in too many corners is just, let's just get more government involved. And there's a way and there's a place for that. But we're seeing a lot of bad ways and bad places right now. And I would say that's that's the motivation, at least from my perspective, for this work with Jason last year and, and continued work in this sense.
0: Great. And, um, and Jason, I, I wanted to... Ask you. I know that the, the the lawfare piece that the two of you worked on was really a response to the Council on Foreign Relations report, where they sort of you know talked about the end of the you know the global internet. Do you want to talk a little bit about what was in that report and sort of what um, you know sort of what made you guys decide that you wanted to to respond to it? Yeah.
2: First of all, thanks for for having me on. <clears throat> Happy New Year, and apologies for my um new year's cold and the gravelly voice that the listeners are going to have to deal with uh this podcast as a result um so this is i think really glad that we're starting kind of at first principles with the kind of definition of internet governance and that chris was here to provide that definition which i think is really useful and and sets an important context i think as chris was alluding to um there has been a move over time um, the history since the internet became um, something that was recognizable as a as a public good and a resource that was uh, worth considering mechanisms of power and control over um, towards uh, towards more government intervention and away from um, this sort of more bottom-up somewhat organic although sometimes still problematic as chris alluded to uh, kind of um, user or, or technologist driven um, you know, kind of protocol-based governance approaches um, that define some of the early era. Um, <clears throat> and so, as companies have become more involved, and the internet has become more commercialized, um, there have been more sort of um, clear opportunities, and 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 some would say, you know, uh, needs for government intervention to protect users, to address uh, anti-competitive behavior, et cetera. And and all of that is is probably as it should be, and consistent with, I think, largely the way other communications technologies, you know, have evolved from kind of disruptive anarchic um, spaces into kind of more controlled and regulated ones. Um, I think the challenge that has become clear over the last few years, in as Chris noted, sort of in 2010, another sort of seminal, I would say waypoint in this history of evolution of conversations around internet governance was the um, declaration, the code of conduct uh, for internet Uh, which was released by the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which is a multilateral club led by China and Russia um, that sort of um, put forth a vision of a sort of top-down government-controlled architecture for internet governance decisions of all shapes and and sorts, and um, had really at its core the preservation of sovereign authority to make decisions as to kind of what what content would available would be available? What powers governments could exercise, um, <clears throat> and much of that was seen as a, a reaction to and an attempt to exercise control over um, the the way that the internet had otherwise broken down pre existing pre internet um, mechanisms of, of information control uh, and surveillance that that those governments had prioritized by nature of their kind of authoritarian um, uh, construct. So. Um, I think over that that sort of that contest between the authoritarian vision and the more sort of democratic model, for lack of a better term, um, was always pretty clear. Sometimes misunderstood, but but by and large held um, until more recently, as more and more democratic governments, uh, including Western governments, some of whom you mentioned India, Australia, um, began to, and the European Union at uh, large began to. Um, exercise more and more control through their domestic lawmaking process over various aspects of the internet, whether it was GDPR with regard to data and data protection, or more recently, the um, laws that attempt to address um, harmful content or particularly problematic uh, types of content. Um, And that's made it harder to distinguish between these two models at a very sort of high level, the authoritarian state governed control model and the kind of more bottom-up organic um, uh, multi-stakeholder approach. Um, I think the, the CFR report is is one of several reports and and scholarly articles and um, you know kind of pundit pieces that have emerged over recent years um, that I think in some ways kind of confuses internet governance and internet freedom. Um, so the report sort of talks about how the era of internet freedom uh, is sort of is is gone um, and and to some extent cast some you know, maybe uh, aspersions as to you know the, the sort of naivete and, and kind of um, um, lack of real politique understanding that, that may have motivated um, those who were involved in developing that and uh, developing that, that, that concept of internet freedom and implementing it into policy and just for the record. Um, Chris and I were, were both part of that enterprise uh, when we worked uh, together at the state Departments in, in the Human Rights Bureau. Um, chris working on the programmatic side myself on the policy side uh, in the you know, working on internet programming and and policy um and so uh you know the, i think that that confusion between internet governance and internet freedom um, is one of the things that that we wanted to kind of identify and push back on and, and note that the simple fact that governments including democratic governments are, taking steps to exercise control over various aspects of the way the internet works in practice and the way internet companies um, uh, hold responsibilities or or liabilities with regard to the internet and various pieces and products and services um, is not not contradictory to an internet governance model that has at its core a sort of interoperable set of protocols and, and standards that allow the basic Sort of information routing and, and data exchange that, that, that supports the global internet, um, and so we wanted to make sure that sort of it, we weren't um, either rhetorically or, or, or more substantively throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Um, and um, you know, I think this report, given the stature that the Council of Formulations and the influence that, that it has as a think tank here in Washington, where, where I'm located as well as giving some of the authors of the report um, who, you know, are at important institutions and companies uh, around the world. Um, and given that it was really um, positioned as a set of recommendations to the U.S. government, um, which has been um, sort of this newish administration kind of was openly thinking about these issues, as we know from some of the, you know, activities that, that took place last year, the Summit for Democracy, uh, and the related declaration for the future of the internet uh, that came out of the Biden White House. Um, so, you know, for, for our sort of purposes, and I think given our experience and our background, um, we thought it was important to try and sort of dig in a little bit deeper to the report. Um, at the end of the day, what I think, and Chris you can, you can uh, amend this uh, sort of synopsis if, if you think necessary, but I think at the end of the day, this, many of the specific, if not most of the specific recommendations in the report are ones that we identify as logical and, and that can be supported. Um, it's really the framing that I think was potentially most most harmful and problematic. Um, you know, the way the report sort of um, sort of casts the existing state of the world as one that is um, sort of antithetical or anemic to um, these objectives around internet freedom um, and and sort of um, therefore recommends that a policy, the U.S. policy should, instead of really being focused on promoting human rights, international human rights, like freedom of expression and privacy and other freedom of association, et cetera, should instead be focused more on kind of a security, a kind of more militarized uh, sort of sense of you know walling ourselves off, protecting ourselves, um, bringing in to that you know, kind of walled and protective environment. Um, those few governments that we deem that we deem to be um, sort of in our club and can and operating consistent with our values, um, you know, there's a lot of potentially problematic implications to that approach that we that we walk through in the in the article, and that we'd be happy to talk more about in uh, on this podcast. But that's that's kind of the the, the broad reason for. For addressing it, and I think you know, that that CFR report has continued to be trotted out at, at various events and be, be cited in, in kind of influential places left and right. So, and we've heard a lot of feedback um, uh, from people who, both inside government and out, who have said, you know, we really appreciated you guys writing that because, you know, you rep- what you articulated represented a lot of what I think people who have been in the trenches working on internet freedom and internet governance issues feel. Um, that wasn't, in their view, sort of captured in the report.
1: Just to piggyback on that a little bit, I, I do completely agree with Jason that the when you get to the level of granular le- recommendations of what are the things that we should do, particularly what should the United States government do in order to sort of improve the information environment overall, I think most of the specific recommendations in the CFR report are things that Jason and I and many others would agree with. It's a question of, Where do you put resources? Where do you put priority? And more importantly, how do you define success and how do you define the goals? So from a target audience of, you know, what should the security apparatuses of the United States government do at this environment of um, lots of malware, lots of attacks, nation state sponsored um, malevolence in various forms in the context of the internet? I think we're all on the same page. The question is whether to, in parallel, continue to pursue the internet freedom agenda that Jason and I are, are continue to be big believers in, as do many others. And in particular, how do you think about and what value do you place on the actions of individuals who are not part of government, who are operating within countries, where their governments are acting in ways that that we believe are contrary to good governance of the internet? So the agenda of internet freedom has always been protect those people, protect their fundamental human rights, both because it is the right thing to do and because it is strategically advantageous to the overarching goal of uh, advancing a, a healthier global internet and global internet ecosystem. And, and the thing that really stood out to us as, as a um as an alarm bell was the idea that we would deprioritize or de-emphasize that because it involves uh, the the result of that is 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 not only active harm to individual human rights, but also giving away a strategic advantage that we possess. So a lot of this, like any other kind of written policy document, depends on who the audience is and what they're going to do with it. So from our perspective, we see the greatest advantage in trying to push for a healthier global internet, in standing true to the idea that a free and open internet is the goal and is the universal goal. Nothing is ever perfect. There are plenty of things that the U.S. government does that are contrary to my ideals of what a perfectly free and open internet should be. That doesn't mean that we can't champion it here at the United States. Um, And it doesn't mean that we need to give up that agenda. And and it doesn't mean that we can't go to countries um, who are certainly hearing from lots of other governments and tell them, you too should pursue a free and open internet. Here's why. Here's how we can help you. So it's, it's, there's, there's just like internet governance itself, the layers of complexity and strategy interwoven through all of these conversations are many and are rich and are messy. And it's incredibly important to be thinking about all of them right now, because we have a new ambassador in the State Department who's coordinating a lot of these things, who was a co-chair of the CFR report. And then in his testimony to the Senate, was asked directly about internet freedom and said some very good things. And so like, I don't have an active worry that he is starting the job in the wrong place, just to put that out on the record. But I want to make sure that he thinks about and sees all of these complex layers and brings all of this together as he is thinking about his priorities and what the State Department will do on these issues. Um, This is also an important moment in time for many, many other reasons. The UN is looking at a cybercrime treaty right now. How does that shake out? UNESCO is hosting an internet for trust event in February where they're trying to bring countries together. And I think within the complex setup that UNESCO has, trying to achieve many of these same values as a collaborative international normative forum, right? The G7 will continue to touch on these. The G20 will continue to touch on these. And as Jason flagged so rightly, every individual country right now is looking at national legal frameworks that touch on internet governance, internet freedom, internet security, internet user rights, and internet business restrictions and freedoms and opportunities. And and where the rubber meets the road often is not in the rhetoric or the politics or the engagements at international fora, at least in my opinion, it's in national level laws. How much does the, the repercussions of the EU's laws affect practices in other areas? EU is not even, I'm not, I'm not particularly concerned about the EU. There's, there's always going to be lots of, of um, contentious conversations there around data transfers and data flows. I'm thinking about India. I'm thinking about a number of other countries where there have been very serious uh, efforts by some to control where data is stored and where it is placed. And if you really get to a future to reference mike's uh, comment earlier about the splinternet if we really get to a place where we are forced to store data in lots of individual specific places and really like tie the technical hands of global data flows and global data storage in service of um, control more than anything else then i think we've just lost a lot we've just lost a lot about what makes the internet so valuable and lost a lot of our leverage in, in saying that it is a right thing for us to do to protect the rights of people in places like China. And, and I, I would hate to do that. I would, I would hate to, to lose the, the idea that it is it is a normatively right and good thing for us to give circumvention tools and secure communications tools and privacy protecting tools to people in other countries um, because we've, we've shifted to a future where in the interest of security, we have to protect our own and not not look beyond our borders
0: it it's it's interesting really the, the the discussion and everything that you guys just said what sort of kept coming up in my mind was how this is sort of like a, a fractally similar argument to to some of the debates more narrowly focused on in terms of like content moderation and and how different companies handle things where you know it, it, all, a lot of these companies started out with this view of like you know, freedom of speech, let more people talk. And, you know, the more we connect people, the better everything will be. And then they discover that there are bad actors in there. Uh, and then there's the question of, do, do you sort of overcorrect in terms of trying to deal with the bad actors? And how do you handle that? And we're sort of seeing the same thing on a, on a global level where, you know, a globally open connected internet is, you know, is something that feels like a good value to have. And then suddenly you discover that there are bad and malicious actors, and sometimes they're nation states, and sometimes they're trying to do things that are really really bad and then suddenly you have well you have a few different you know uh, competing forces here some of which are like well how do you deal with that um but then also some of it is like some of the people behind the, those those bad actors are trying to gain control of it and I guess to some extent you could argue this, that the same thing is happening perhaps that's a description of what's happening with Twitter right now which is you know malicious forces have taken control over it and and it, it becomes this, this different kind of battle um, and I, I hadn't even thought of it that way until listening to both of you kind of describe all of this and and, and I'm starting to see like how you know how all the discussions we've had that are more you know, I guess micro, uh, you know, focused on 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 specific platforms, or how do you handle those things, are really the same kind of discussion in some sense as as the, the the global internet governance questions. Does that this just occurred to me? So I'm I'm raising it. Does that does that sound like a fair description? Yeah, I think there's definitely some <clears throat> some real parallels. I mean, there's no doubt that
2: the the issues that the big tech companies are currently grappling with, with when it comes to both the kind of business model generally sort of data focused and that kind of surveillance capitalism, mm-hmm. you know, kind of um, and what that means for how they design their services and their relationship with their users and, and the third parties, as well as specifically content moderation challenges um, flow from the fact that they operate these transnational public spaces, right? They're privately owned, but they are, for all intents and purposes, public in their use and in, in the way people value them. Um, and so the lack of any kind of global law uh, to address these kinds of governance questions and decisions has forced them to to come up with private rules, right? Um to to address these issues. And inevitably that creates friction with the entities that historically have seen it as their prerogative to decide what the law is and to to govern information sharing and um, and to govern uh, individual people's uh, activities and, and to police for legitimate concerns, whether that's, um, you know, uh, crime or security, et cetera. Um, and so that, yeah, so that, <clears throat> that sort of puts us in the situation where we are today, Chris articulated where governments are increasingly stepping in because they don't feel like the companies are doing a good enough job or are appropriately prioritizing particular set of issues or their particular domestic agendas and concerns Um, and as a result then we see these um, distinct laws creating potentially different operating environments that that can then create legitimate barriers to the free flow of information and data across borders whether that's data localization very explicitly requiring companies to to hold data locally um, in uh, you know, in some cases with the, the express purpose of trying to protect that data from misuse. In other cases, um, you know, a, a perhaps less explicit um, intention to to make it easily, more easily available to, to government authorities, um, but also laws that require companies to take a more restrictive or potentially less restrictive, although we see, we see a lot more of the more restrictive variety uh, approach to particular types of content, whether that's hate speech or disinformation, extremist content, etc. cetera. Um, And all of that translates at the user level to very different sort of internet experiences um, because the the kinds of services that may be made available to you, the kinds of um, rights that you may have and the recourse uh, available to you as a user vis-a-vis your platform or vis-a-vis your government may change. Um, And of course, the content that you see um, will, will also change and that, you know, None of that, again, none of that means the internet itself is fractured or the internet itself is at a kind of protocol level, um, no longer a coherent sort of technology uh, or ecosystem. Um, and so I think that's where it's really important to make that distinction that like, you know, we, we can and we will inevitably have different experiences of the internet based on our location, our language, the, the laws that, that apply to us, depending on where we sit. Um, and that the choices that we make as users, right? Which, which services we choose to sign up for, how active we are in the, in the, man- the co-management of those spaces. Um, <clears throat> um, and so again, I think for us, it's really important to just try to draw that distinction that, that you can have those discussions and debates about what's appropriate and how, how we can do better to, to, rel- to sort of smooth off the rough edges of those thoseistic approaches. And I really you know, want to tip my hat to the work that Chris and uh, Susan Ness have been doing With their work around the concept of modularity as a as a framework for different countries who are trying to approach these challenges in you know in legitimate democratic ways, um, thinking about how they can do that, bringing in sort of community multi-stakeholder support and and mitigating against these kind of distinctions of approach that might have adverse unintended consequences. Um, But let's let's distinguish those sort of more policy and surface level considerations of the experience on the internet from the underlying sort of uh, discussions and governance processes about um, the way the internet itself functions. Uh, and, and that's, you know, that's where I think sometimes people slip up and, uh, and that can be quite dangerous because the only people who I think genuinely want to have that conversation about how the internet itself works uh, are the authoritarian states or uh, in some cases, you know, other actors who are, whose agendas are not in the public interest.
1: I think that's a really good point. That last one in particular, like who who is looking from the governmental perspective at the way the internet works? And we've had a lot of really interesting conversations over the past few years. Well, not we. I have not been involved in them, <laughs> thankfully. Um, but but the international fora uh, through through various UN operations, um, through the the ITU in particular, the International Telecommunications Union, part of the United Nations, um, have seen a number of proposals from. China, as a governmental entity, from Huawei as a Chinese company, to reevaluate IP itself um, through through something called the the new IP agenda, and and from this perspective, this is this is an attempt to redesign how we look at internet protocols to bake more governmental involvement into their creation. Fortunately, every time this has come up thus far, the ITU has said this is a matter for the international standards bodies they have been in charge of it forever there is no reason to change that we should defer to their expertise and the standards bodies have have said in response to new ip every time there is nothing actually new about new ip this does not solve any problems that we cannot solve with the internet protocol stack that we already have therefore we will certainly consider every problem here within the space and we already are through our own mechanisms through structures and designs Um, But it does sort of harken back to this idea that, you know, we operated under a paradigm for a long time, that we would have a self-regulatory structure for the internet, that the internet would take care of itself, that the companies would collaborate. And for many years that worked, but it hasn't been satisfactory. It particularly hasn't been satisfactory to government stakeholders. And they see problems, including in large part in the content moderation space that Mike wisely nodded to, but also in security, also in privacy and many others. And so they say, how do we solve these problems and and the you know the sort of pendulum swing at the other end is heavy government regulation <laughs> and 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 the right answer i think we all agree needs to be some form of effective co-regulatory structure where we put together multi-stakeholder multinational kinds of conversations thank you jason for the shout out that's very much what susan Nesson and i are doing at the Edinburgh public policy center on modularity is trying to explain that framework and how it fits into these governance structures um but at the end, that's kind of assumes that we all still share the goal that we want to have a collaborative, cooperative, global, open and free internet, right? And that we don't just want to say this needs to start with government walls and boundaries and then move in, you know, move to build freedom within those walls. Um, and, and and I, you know, I, I worry if we have lost that assumption that everything else crumbles in our paradigm of what a good government looks like. So it's it's sort of why, like, well, to get back to the CFR report, while again, like the, the details have a lot of good and good ideas in them, but I worry how that foundation stacks up if we don't sort of just start by saying the goal is still a global open and free internet, even knowing the, that that is is in some ways a North Star that like the actual North Star, we will never really reach, but is very useful at keeping us on track as we work together to build the co-regulatory governance system of the internet for the future. Um, That might've been tying a few too many things together, but Jason looks like he was going to work right on that. So awesome.
2: I think that's right. And I think the other thing that I worry about getting lost in the kind of policy recommendations that that flow from documents like the CFR report and some of the narrative around, you know, um, digital sovereignty, for example, which is very ascendant in Europe at the moment um, is the recognition on the part of states that, there will have to be some compromise on their part so that, yes we can all recognize and appreciate that states perhaps will take and should take a more active role in certain areas where there are appropriate competence and and where we have you know uh, you know processes to create rules that are fair and equitable and put everyone on notice and, and then we can sort of proceed accordingly that's what democracy is all about but what makes the internet different is that it is this global space and therefore not every country can, Uh, If we want to maintain the global interconnected resource that it is today, and lots of good reasons to do that, governments have to um, voluntarily, to some extent, forsake the ability to do things like create a law that says, I can tell a company not only to take content down in my jurisdiction, but to make it take that content down in every country and make it universally unavailable around the world. Um, That is something that states can claim as their sovereign authority. It is something we have seen states articulate and and, and try and exercise specifically with regard to the internet, um, you know, the, the battles over uh, the right to be forgotten are the most explicit example, um, but it is fundamentally inconsistent with the kind of idea of a, an open sort of governance architecture for this this shared resource, which is the internet. And so that's, that's the part where I think, you know, the United States has always been one of the most are sort of prolific, I think, defenders uh, on the international stage of this idea that, like, yeah, we can all, you know, exercise authority in our own spheres, but but we should be very careful to make sure that the global resource that is the internet is maintained and that we that we mitigate the damage that we do to that through our own domestic regulatory approaches. And and I worry when we start to hear about things like, you know, a club of democracies or an internet for liberal countries um, that that we really sort of get we jettisoned that notion of kind of first and foremost doing no harm to that open global uh, resource. Um, and as Chris pointed out at the beginning, that that not only um, sort of undercuts us rhetorically, but but can really lead us in some very problematic policy directions. Do
0: do we do you do either of you or both of you think that? What has happened in the last year with Russia and Ukraine has played into some of this as well, because, you know, when, you know, in the, the months specifically after Russia invaded, um, you know, there were a lot of calls to effectively cut off Russia from the the global Internet. And there was actually you know, I mean, there was pushback on it, but, but there was, to, to, to my view, a surprising, a a depressingly, surprisingly large number of people who were saying, yes, we should, we should cut off Russia uh, and, you know, in a whole bunch of different ways and kind of hoping to do that. And, and that struck me as a really sort of dangerous position and one that, that went back, you know, against this view of the, of a global open internet. Um, But, but, you know, it was interesting to me how many people, organizations, governments even seem to be somewhat supportive of it. Um, do, do you, think that like large events like that, whether we're talking about that particular event or others, um, sort of are, are helping to contribute to, to, this, this view of, of sort of ending this, the, the view of the global interest?
2: I think it has in some ways. And I think in some ways, maybe it's, it's a useful reminder of the value of freedom and the importance of preserving freedom. Um, the three very quick examples kind of in the post-Russian uh, full-scale invasion of Ukraine context. Um, one is the, the Ukrainian effort to get ICANN to essentially um, drop the, the domain and <clears throat> disconnect Russia from the, the you know, interoperable uh, assigned names and numbers system. I think that you know, clearly was an overreach and I was pleased to see you know, ISOC and others jump very quickly out with statements to say we all support you, Ukraine, but this is taking it too far. Not only is that unprecedented, but it's unclear, you know, this would actually strategically be in your favor. Um, So I think, you know, that's an example of where, you know, I think the Ukrainian government was just looking for anything sort of at their disposal to help sort of rally the international community against Russia and isolate Russia. Um, And they probably went too far. And I'm glad that the international community sort of didn't take the bait on that. However, the european union response to russian propaganda um, something that gni has spoken about publicly um, which essentially was to use their sanction authority to require um member states to ban um certain russian uh media outlets not only from their Mm -hmm. airwaves and licensed spaces like radio and television but also from their internet um was, I think, an example of, of, of that government going too far um, in a direction that was, you know, while you can understand, right, they're trying to sort of mitigate against Russian propaganda, um, you have to weigh the, the sort of benefit of that, like how many people within the European Union are really being sort of, you know, um, have, have the, the sort of role pulled over them through these um, Russian propaganda online. So on, online. It's not insignificant, number. I mean, it, it, it's a real concern. Um, but the, again, the moral authority that you... You might lose by taking a step like that, perhaps inconsistent with your own values and, and the European Charter. The European Court in Strasbourg has pronounced on this in favor of, of what the European Union did. I'm not sure if that will be appealed further to, to the sort of higher level of the court. But um, you know, we were certainly concerned about that that step. Um, and then I think the other one is just some of the private companies that acted. Um, In response to public pressure, largely from people in the US or Europe and other democratic countries, um, to sort of hastily withdraw the underlying um, services that they provide uh, to telecommunications and internet services in Russia, I think was strategically unwise. I can see why they did it from a public relations perspective, right? They're not making a lot of money in Russia, and on the other hand, they're getting you know um they're getting you know castigated in the media for uh for continuing to support you know this murderous russian regime. um but i think it, it, at the end of the day <clears throat> there was a real risk that those voluntary decisions by companies in response to public pressure would actually take away access by everyday russian citizens to the open internet and the only source of independent reporting about the actual situation in Ukraine and and to narratives that that would contradict the the Russian propaganda, state state driven propaganda. Um, so you know, Cloudflare is a, is a good example of a company you know to be um, a front counter as a GNI company, uh G- company member. But um, but they 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 have and still are under a lot of pressure um, because they have taken I think a principled position to say, look, you know, the, the services we provide are sort of neutral. We're not going to weigh in on this sort of geopolitical level, and we. Think there is a value in having people in Russia, um, you know, the, those who are still trying to do independent reporting, those who are still trying to counter the the, the, the state propaganda, have access to the open internet, and, and our services help facilitate that, and, and that's a value worth trying to retain. It's not that doesn't mean we're supporting Putin. It doesn't mean we're supporting the invasion. Um, so there, I think you know, it can cut in both directions, but I think certainly this overarching sort of move towards a more um, contested geopolitical reality that we see today with kind of this multipolar world and, and spheres of influence being carved out is c- inconsistent with the idea of a global uh, internet and, and is gonna continue to put pressure on um, countries like the US to figure out a way to articulate an yep. approach that that seems you know, in our sovereign interest, but yet nevertheless may result in some short term uh, inconsistencies or compromises
1: yeah let me I want to add a couple of quick points to that um, to Mike's to Mike's uh, prompt as well um, we we can't pretend that the uh, existence and and I think likely the substantial volume of nation state sponsored activity on the internet doesn't contribute to this conversation as well it does um, but at the same time you know it, spies fly airplanes too. Right? Like you have to think about the trade-offs that are involved in 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 drastically trying to undermine the underlying mechanisms that support such activities. The second piece is you know the Ch- China has had its great firewall in place for many, many years right now right and, and Iran has taken similar efforts to try to technically cut off a lot of the rest of the internet from its country. Now the Chinese firewall in particular I think has only been able to be in existence as long as it has been because it's fairly porous right rich people in china can still watch youtube even though it's not allowed because they have tools and the nature of that those gaps are the in my opinion the only reason it still exists right my favorite line in the Lawfare piece which i will use every chance i get is that i i fundamentally believe efforts to um to draw walls and boundaries within the global internet like what china is doing like what russia is increasingly doing like what iran does are aberrant fragile and ultimately temporary because people want to be able to communicate and they want to be able to communicate on the internet and they will fight back and they will keep fighting back and and that is a good thing for the health of the internet um and and so i keep coming back to the yes china has a firewall yes that firewall is still technically in place but that doesn't make it okay and that doesn't mean that it's okay for us to swap or sorry jason what or inevitable, exactly, and so it definitely doesn't mean that we are allowed to build our own wall in a sort of a digital Trumpian sense to keep them out uh, in in any sort of security motivated bit. So, so I I can sort of see the cognitive elements of legitimacy building over the past few years um, to say that that this is that this is okay, but it's not. It's not okay, and it's not. It's not. Um, it's not stable. For the internet to be divided up in such a fashion, we shouldn't pretend that it is, or or, or everything will break.
0: And um, there are a whole bunch of questions I could ask and follow, but we've gone on for for a while. And the one thing we haven't done uh, is we haven't touched on what what you know what I said we were discuss at the beginning, which is what we think is going to happen as we head into twenty twenty three now. Um, and so, just as as you know, sort of final closing thoughts, uh, you know, I'd like each of you. Uh, to to give your thoughts on kind of you know what do you see happening uh, now that we're in 2023 what in, in this area in terms of this this you know fight for a global free internet or against it I guess um, you know what do you see and and uh, I don't know which one who wants to go uh, first I'll, but
1: <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll go first um, Jason's been been uh, going first a little bit and I'll hopefully make that a little easier on him I am a stubborn optimist. I always believe that things will get better. It has been hard the past few years. I'm not going <laughs> to lie, but I am a stubborn optimist, and I see I see reason to believe that the um, sort of champions of openness and freedom, such as they are, are moving towards better-defined regulatory paradigms and, and co-regulatory governance paradigms that say this is how we can manage online harm in a way that doesn't undermine freedom and and internet user freedom and choice. This is how we can come to a better agreement on privacy, even though the EU will always have slightly different levels and thresholds and trade-offs and, and frameworks and that sort of thing and I think that when the when uh, and when when there is a clearer alternative to an authoritarian repression based means of getting government involved in internet governance um, that that will that that will win out and that that will start to gain some traction it'll take longer than one year but I think we will see that and and on the flip side I think we will continue to see the Chinese economy and the Russian economy suffer as a consequence of their own isolationism and their refusal to be more open and more collaborative and to encourage more free innovation and free market activity in this sector. So, I mean, I see a trajectory to the better. Um, I I, I believe it is inevitable whether we will continue to see that trajectory grow this year or whether it will take a little more time.
2: Yeah, and I'm uh, part of the reason why Chris and I get along so well is we're we're both uh, stubborn optimists. um, So I'm I'm not going to try and sort of present the flip side of that coin. I I just flag a couple of things specifically to keep uh, for for listeners keep their eyes out um, for signs of potential progress or or the opposite. One is the U.S. has um, agreed to take on the chairship of the Freedom Online Coalition, which is a group of countries that have committed to a set of sort of principled approaches to. Um, dealing with the internet and and issues that arise on the internet. Um, It's over a decade old and this is the first time that the U.S. has chaired it despite having been very influential over its founding and and its subsequent history. Um, So I think that's a real opportunity for the U.S. to articulate a new sort of vision for the internet that continues to keep freedom at its core because that's what the the Freedom Online Coalition is really focused on. Um, But to also explain what that means in more concrete terms for things like Dealing with you know content moderation and some of the platform challenges and cybersecurity risks um, and vulnerabilities, um, you know I, I'm less optimistic about our our ability to sort of do domestic regulation and legislation that that will kind of be model in that respect. But at least on the foreign policy level, the U.S. is sort of taking up. Uh, a position to kind of yeah, re-engage in a, in a more active way. And this follows on the Declaration for the Future of the Internet that I referred to earlier that, that came out last year. Um, so that's one thing to watch. I think another thing is, you know, the DSA, the Digital Services Act, which we've also referred to a couple times already, um, will sort of come into force. Um, I think you you had an excellent podcast um, late last year, Mike, with, with uh, Daphne and Emma that I think, you know, really did a good job of underscoring uh, some of the remaining questions of uncertainties of, of sort of how this is really going to work in practice. And I think, um, you know, a lot of that will will have to start getting ironed out. Um, I think it will, on the one hand, demonstrate that that governing these tricky issues on the internet rather than of the internet is, is really challenging um, and hopefully make regulators and lawmakers around the world a little more humble about sort of how they approach it. On the other hand, I, I will say that of all the approaches that have been put out there, the DSA does have a lot to commend it. It, it. it strayed away from some of the temptations that we've seen a lot of governments, unfortunately, um, sort of fall for, to try and you know define a series of harms that go beyond what content is actually illegal, um, to to really um, make intermediaries responsible for uh, a lot of what's happening on the internet at, at a very kind of fundamental level through liability. And so, so I think it it can and will probably. Um, sort of set a benchmark for how we talk about internet regulation. And again, in some ways, there are a lot of open questions that will need to be answered, but in other ways, I think it's it's a useful, it could be worse uh, kind of benchmarks to be using as kind of a, um, as a measuring stick. So um, Chris mentioned this UNESCO conference coming up in February. There's a sort of model framework that UNESCO is, is talking about um, that, there's a lot of open questions I have about that. I'm, I'm on the Catalyst Committee for that conference, and we'll be actively engaging to try and make sure that you know um, their good intentions are not undercut by sort of unintended potential bad consequences. So you know these conversations with the WISIS process is kicking back up again with the WISIS plus 20 coming down the pike. So there's there's a lot happening at the multilateral level that we will all need to continue to pay attention to. But I, I'm with Chris that you know over time I think we will see. Um, a sort of convergence between these principles of openness at the kind of fundamental technical layer and protocol layers um, with a a sort of more thoughtful approach to how we then address specific challenges, whether it's regarding competition or content moderation uh, at a national level in ways that can be reconciled um, while still maintaining the idea of like each country gets to approach these things in their own sovereign uh, sovereign way. So looking forward to uh, many sector podcasts to come on, on, on the specifics over the course of the next year.
0: Yes. Well, as, as the, the, the third optimist on the podcast, I'm, I'm glad to end on a somewhat optimistic note, recognizing that there will be plenty of challenges along the way and plenty of issues to, to discuss and to be concerned about and to, to try and focus attention and energy in, in one direction or another. But uh uh, to 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 both of you, Chris and Jason, thanks so much for for writing that piece initially um, and and getting the thinking out there and getting people talking about it, and for taking the time to come on the podcast and and discuss it with with us and everybody as well. So thank you, thank you so much for for taking the time.
1: Thanks thank you much, always a pleasure, Jason.
0: And uh, also thanks to everyone for listening, and uh, we'll be back next week.
1: If we don't stand up to them, someone will get Huh To grab a shovel and dig up the cat huh. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt To grab a shovel and dig up the cat